Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Good time for you to jump in with your question, comment, or vote. We're asking you what was the best thing you saw anywhere in the sports universe? What was the worst thing you saw since we were together Friday anywhere in that same universe? Or you can chime into the question, comment, or complaint. Quickly on quarterbacks. Tua Tungavaloa went out with a high ankle injury, but he is expected to be back for the number one in the nation, Crimson Tide. Alabama beat Tennessee as expected. All of the super heavyweights won convincingly. Number one, Alabama. Number two, LSU. Number three, Clemson. They took it to Louisville. Number four, Ohio State. Number five, Oklahoma. Wisconsin, remember, lost the number six team entering the weekend. They're out. Number seven, Penn State did beat Michigan at Happy Valley. That was a closer one. But the same heavyweights we thought of on Friday are the same heavyweights we have today, just in a slightly different poll order. Two of Tonga Vailoa will be essential for the Crimson Tide to make a run in another SEC title or another national title. When I saw that injury, it looked at first glance he might be out for the year. It does not turn out to be the case. It's actually, he did need surgery. Wonders of modern technology. You can get a special type of surgery on a special type of ankle sprain and still be ready to play three weeks later. That's where Alabama is, so not as bad as it has originally looked. Speaking of polls, and then one quarterback among that collection I mentioned, six touchdowns for Aaron Rodgers of the Packers against the Raiders. Teddy Bridgewater now 5-0, and filling in for Drew Brees as the Saints beat Chicago at Chicago to get to 6-1. and Kirk Cousins is on fire, and Minnesota right now, because of that defense and a better version of Kirk Cousins, looks to me like one of the better contenders in the NFC. The Vikings are 5-2 and two after winning over the Lions in Detroit. Jacoby Brissett actually outplayed Deshaun Watson as the Colts got to 4-2 and two and first place in the AFC South with that 30-23 win over the Texans. The former Wolfpack star, Via Florida, Jacoby Brissett, 26 for 39, 326 passing yards, four touchdowns and no interceptions. If you outplayed Deshaun Watson, you're doing something really right, and Indianapolis is atop the AFC South as a result. Dak Prescott and the Cowboys shellacked my Eagles 37 to 10. Dallas leads the NFC East, but the number one QB worth celebrating, I think, is Lamar Jackson of the Baltimore Ravens. I know that the Seahawks defense is not a vintage Seahawks defense. But for a while, it was, yeah, Lamar Jackson is an amazing dual threat, but dot, dot, dot. You know, one of the wins and some of his big numbers were over the Dolphins, who still haven't won a game. And more were over the Bengals, who actually still haven't won a game. Others were against the Cardinals and the Steelers, who are struggling. Quick aside, the winless Dolphins and the winless Bengals play each other on December 22nd. We couldn't really have 0-14 against 0-14 by that point, would we? I mean, the, the loser would get the first pick in the draft next year. I mean, I don't know. The NFL rarely has undefe undefeated teams in the regular season, rarely has winless teams. The Dolphins and the Bengals are that bad. And some of Lamar Jackson's numbers came at the expense of those horrific teams. Now, again, it's not vintage Seattle, but that game was in front of the proverbial 12th man in Seattle, and it was Baltimore getting to 5-2 and two with a 30-16 to 16 victory. Lamar Jackson ran well again. Lamar Jackson threw well again. And Peter King of Sports Illustrated, one of my favorites on all things NFL, listed his three top candidates for MVP as including Lamar Jackson of the Baltimore Ravens. Now, I am so glad that I didn't go Bill Polian 
on Lamar Jackson when he was the number 32 overall pick out of Louisville. Remember, as a sophomore under Bobby Petrino at Louisville in the ACC, Lamar Jackson won the Heisman Trophy. If you remember him as a freshman, he was a deer in the headlights. Truly had no idea what he was doing at the quarterback position. That's not revisionist history. I watched all of his games. He didn't have a clue how to play the quarterback position. Deer in the headlights, athlete being asked to be a quarterback, and it just was ugly more often than it was pretty. Next year, he won the Heisman, and then he had a good year as a junior and turned pro early, obviously. There were enough doubts about him that he slid all the way. If you knew he could be a dual threat the way Cam Newton was that as an MVP in 2015, if you really believed, and enough NFL teams really believed that this version – MVP candidate version of Lamar Jackson was a possibility, much less a probability, he wouldn't have slid all the way to 32. Bill Polian, the Hall of Fame general manager and talent evaluator, infamously said, if Lamar wants a future in the NFL, it's going to have to be at wide receiver. I'm really glad I didn't say that. Can you track down people's quotes about what they were saying about Lamar when he came out of Louisville a couple years ago? Because I think there's a lot of folks who would love to change their original scouting report this guy is both somebody with a passer rating of 94. That means you're a lot more than just an athlete. And when it comes to his rushing yardage from the quarterback position, Michael Vick holds the single season record. It's 1,000 yards and change. Uh, 1039, 1,039 Michael Vick. That's the single season rushing record for any quarterback. Lamar Jackson threw the Baltimore Ravens 5-2 and two start is on pace for more than 1,300 rushing yards. So he would absolutely annihilate that record. Now, how much do you want him running? It's almost a quarterback version of Christian McCaffrey and the Panthers, you know, the high-usage guy, but also somewhere in a lot of people's top five MVP lists. There's another version involving Cam Newton, right? Well, you like that your quarterback can run. But as Cam returns to practice this week, if you took so many hits because you're a dual threat, and those hits are a lot tougher in the NFL than they were for you in college, do you have, have you taken so much tread off the tire by your early 30s that nobody's sure what you have left? Whereas pocket passers, Drew Brees, Tom Brady, I mean, they're in their late 30s, early 40s, and playing quite nicely, thank you very much. I don't know where that story is going to go, but Marcus Peters already has uplifted the Ravens' defense, brand new via trade from the LA Rams. And meanwhile, Jalen Ramsey has already helped the LA Rams after being traded from the Jaguars to LA. 1-800-849-2761. Let me try Stephen Apex. You're next on the David Glenn Show. Welcome to Best and Worst of the Weekend. What's going on, Dave? I'm doing great, man. What's on your mind? Dave, uh, I know it's, it's, it's not even in the thing to get up tight about or whatever. But why is it that Clemson is still dropping and Alabama is still number one and neither one of those has played anybody else? I'm fine with the other two jumping, but Alabama is not number one if you're going by so-called ITS. Yeah, I think, it, I think it has to do with margin of victory. I mean, they say that margin of victory is not a playoff committee uh, criterion. And, of course, this is just the polls. The committee doesn't even have its first poll until November. But when Alabama is out there crushing, you know, Duke's score was 42-3. to Or they beat Ole Miss by 28. And they beat South Carolina by 24. And they beat 
uh, Tennessee this weekend by 20-plus. When they're annihilating basically everything in their past, in their path, rather, and Carolina almost shocked Clemson in Chapel Hill, that's going to be one thing. But I think your initial impression is right. Don't worry about it now. It doesn't matter that some people have Clemson at number five right now. It just doesn't matter at all. If the Tigers go 13-0 and and win the ACC, they're in the college football playoff, period. There's no, no set of circumstances that would keep them out. They do have to keep winning, and then they got to go ahead and win the ACC title game against whomever. But Clemson is one of the best teams in the country. Their offense still isn't hitting on all cylinders. You know, Trevor Lawrence threw a couple more picks against Louisville. The passing game is out of sorts. The offensive line has been a problem at times. Trevor Lawrence has not been the best quarterback in the ACC. That's just the reality so far. But he can be, and he's still you know, a potential number one overall pick in the NFL draft by the time he's done with the Clemson Tigers. Clemson, at its best, can win another national championship. Clemson's offense right now would not be good enough to pull that off. Good enough to win the ACC again? Yes. Good enough to win another national title? No. They need a healthy Travis Etienne. The running back actually says he's okay. If you saw him pull up late in that Louisville game, that looked like Tua again. Tua looked like he might be out for a long time. Prognosis, much better than that after ankle surgery. Travis Etienne looked like he might be out for a long time. And he's exactly the kind of guy you would need to win a big college football playoff game again. He doesn't even get that many carries, but he gets a lot of yards. Same dude. Yeah, you might want to protect him in the regular season against most opponents. You might need him for 20 or more carries come, you know, an Alabama game or, or something else in the college football playoff. So Clemson and Alabama both dodge scary-looking injuries. Regarding the polls, the main reason it doesn't matter is that a lot of these unbeatens are playing each other. So what's going to happen to Clemson when the Tigers keep winning? And, you know, Penn State has matchups against both Minnesota and Ohio State, neither of which has lost yet. Somebody's got to lose that game, right? When LSU and Alabama play each other on November 9th, it might be a barn burner. But it is, unless it's an unusual set of circumstances, the loser of that game, maybe if it's just so down to the wire, the loser barely slides at all. But in most occasions, somebody wins by a more significant margin, and the loser's going to slide a few slots. The loser of the LSU-Alabama game on November 9th will not drop from the college football playoff picture. I think we all know that. But they would drop below the Clemson Tigers in most circumstances. For now, again, don't worry, be happy is the bottom line. Most of this stuff is going to sort itself out in the upper echelon of college football. On the other side, more of your calls later this hour. Joe Person in less than 20 minutes on all things National Football League, including the return of Cam Newton to the practice field for the Carolina Panthers as they prepare for their trip to San Francisco. Mac Brown of the North Carolina Tar Heels live in about 30 minutes. Good time for your phone calls on the other side. 1-800-849-2761. More of your best and worst of the weekend with more of mine. How did the New York Yankees end up on the worst of the weekend list, man. They were in the Final Four. They pushed the Astros to six, six games. It will be Houston against Washington in the World Series starting tomorrow night. The New York Yankees saw a century-long streak come to an end this weekend. More on that story with more of your calls. Football, basketball, baseball, and otherwise next on the David Glenn Show. 
I made a reference to Mike Krzyzewski of Duke and his GOAT status. And I kid you not, I got angry emails. If I really wanted to insult somebody, I would include some kind of sentence about being in the bleeping prairie chewing on grass. This is The David Glenn Show. David Glenn Show. Mac Brown of the North Carolina Tar Heels joins us in about 25 minutes. Joe Person of the Athletic Carolina on all things NFL and Panthers related. He actually shadowed veteran tight end Greg Olson this weekend as Olson stepped back into the broadcast booth for Fox Sports and was part of the call, the game analyst for the Giants Cardinals NFL game. Those guests later, your calls now, best and worst of the weekend and otherwise, 1-800-849-2761. One thing I promised, coming out of a weekend where a lot of the worst of the weekend was NC State getting crushed at Boston College, Duke getting crushed at UVA, Wisconsin undefeated and number six in the polls, the Badgers rare, rarely in that neighborhood, they lose at a two and four Illinois team. Miami lost at home to Georgia Tech. Florida State fell in front of our eyes at Wake Forest to fall to three and four. Remember, Willie Taggart missed a bowl last year, hence the hot seat conversation, and he has a losing record here seven games into year two. Boise State fell from the ranks of the unbeaten by losing at BYU. And in the NFL, Mitch Trubisky and the Bears are taking a lot of heat. The Bears' vaunted defense was torched by the Saints, even without Drew Brees or Alvin Kamara playing for New Orleans. Trubisky, the former UNC star and high pick of the Bears, has not quite turned the corner yet. I saw a Yankees-related worst of the weekend, and I'm thinking to myself, well, how bad could a season be when you make it to the ALCS? I would argue you lost to the better team. You won at home over the weekend just to get to the Game 6 in Houston. And then, all right, Jose Altuve hits the game-winner series clincher over your closer, Araldis Chapman. Nobody likes losing. Nobody likes to see their season end. But it just didn't feel like a worst of the weekend. Well, you know, the Yankees are both one of the most liked teams in America when it comes to baseball fans and one of the most disliked teams in America. And whereas some dynastic-type figures out there, like you could – get tired of hearing about a Patriots fan bragging about all of their Super Bowls under Brady and Belichick, there's not a whole lot you can say lately. Like, maybe if you're a Giants fan, you can just say Eli Manning, you know, and, and that's the best comeback you have. But over two decades, the, what's the best you can say? Like, you guys weren't good in the 20th century? Like, you know, that might be the best comeback you have. I saw a lot of bad New England teams prior to the turn of the century, I can promise you that. In hockey, you know, some people would get tired of hearing about back in the day, the Canadians had the most Stanley Cups and were winning all the time. Again, not so much lately in their case. But the New York Yankees, I did not know this until this weekend, had a century-long streak come to an end. Now, you, Darren Vaught, as a Red Sox fan, may know about this. And I just saw the first college basketball poll of the season, so let me sneak that in as well. Michigan State is your preseason number one in the AP poll. Believe it or not, although we would all associate the legendary Magic Johnson with Michigan State basketball or their current coach, Tom Izzo, Hall of Famer, recent guest on our show, as you know, the, the face of Michigan State basketball, first time they've ever been the preseason number one in the history of the AP poll. I would not have guessed that. But there you have it, Tom Izzo and the Spartans. Remember, one of his stars, Cassius Winston, stayed 
in an era where so many guys turn pro. Kentucky 2, Kansas 3, and then you have the inevitable ACC presence, Duke at 4 and Louisville at 5. Carolina was at number 9 and UVA was at number 11. I'm trying to warn Tar Heel and Cavaliers fans that you have more indigestion coming than many of you are guessing. I don't know if they're top 10 caliber teams, but that's where they are in the polls right now. Duke and Louisville seriously are loaded and I think belong in that upper echelon. So more on that later. The Yankees' century-long streak came to an end. Would you have any idea what that streak represents, Darren Vaught, noted Red Sox fan? I think I do. It has something to do with uh, them playing in a World Series in every decade. So, for instance, like the 1910s, the 1920s, they've played in a World Series every decade until – this, this one, current the 2010s, right? Yeah, so, and it's over, right? They didn't make it in 2010. They didn't make it in 2011 through 19. So they are O for the decade in terms of World Series trips. That's pretty impressive because, as I mentioned, the Patriots were bad for a long time before what you've seen over the last 20 years. The Canadians were the best of hockey, but the first comeback you have to any obnoxious north-of-the-border Canadians fan is like, when's the last time you won one? It's been a long time, okay? You have comebacks for virtually everybody. I grew up in a world where the Yankees were really, really good, you know, playing baseball, watching baseball, mid-'70s. From the mid-'70s to the early-'80s, The Yankees were in the playoffs every year and won a couple of World Series. So for me, as a little boy loving baseball, 1976, oh, there's Thurman Munson and the Yankees. They they didn't win it that year, but they were in the World Series, okay? 1977, oh, there's Reggie Jackson, World Series MVP. The Yankees win it all. The very next year, that was Bucky bleeping Dent and his year as the MVP. And the Yankees win back-to-back World Series. And, and wow, they made it again the next year and again the next year. They might have missed one in there, but that, that's what I grew up with. Well, they, after a mostly down 1980s, they still did make one World Series in the 80s, hence extending their century-long streak. So I don't know about the 20s, but apparently the Yankees went to the World Series six times in the 1920s, winning three oh, that's of the six. Murderer's Row right? territory on the timeline. Babe yeah. Ruth and friends. Yep. 1930s, they went five times and won all five. I mean, this is deep, rich, tra- crazy tradition, right? 1940s, they went five times, winning four. 1950s, they went eight times. <laughs> that's Yogi Berra and that crew, right? They went eight. There's only 10 years. They went to the World Series eight times, winning six. 1960s, they went five times and won two. And on and on it goes. The closest to a miss was the 80s. That was before Steinbrenner had figured it back out. George Steinbrenner is famous for buying players. And at the mid to late 70s, it worked, two World Series titles. And then it fizzled. And after, ma- after winning it all, or, or no, making the World Series in 1981, not another appearance until the mid-1990s. It was a wicked long drought. But even in the 90s, they made it three times and they won all three. Am I boring with you, you with this as a Red Sox fan, Darren? 2000s, they made it four times. Like, you don't have to be all that old to remember the Yankees in the World Series a lot. Four trips, they won twice. Now, they have been in the playoffs seven of the last ten years. They have just fallen short of the World Series in all ten of those years, hence the end of a century-long streak. You don't get to do a dance or throw a party, right, as a no, Red Sox well, fan? No, it, well, it's actually, it's funny to me. It's a, it's a really interesting stat, but to me, 
it's a little bit deceiving because this decade has been nothing like what you've talked about with that 14, 15-year stretch in the 80s and going into the 90s. And, I mean, it can be argued that the Yankees have had some of their best teams in about 20 or 30 years these past two. Look at you being the objective journalist even about your arch-rival <laughs> enemy New York Yankees. And it was. It's like... And, and again, what's your comeback? Like, it's not ancient history. The last time they won it all, it was 10 years ago. It was barely before the decade turned, right? In 2009, your World Series champions, sadly at the expense of my Philadelphia Phillies, was your New York Yankees. I mean, it is, it is as rich, deep, and steady a tradition, I think, as anything in the history of American sports, right? We have a lot of other examples, Duke and Carolina basketball lately, et cetera, Dean Smith through Roy Williams, Mike Krzyzewski, and others at Duke. When you're going back a century, man, that's about as deep and rich and impressive as it gets. Somehow, though, the Yankees a worst of the weekend as their season comes to an end. Joe Person on the NFL on the other side, Mac Brown of the North Carolina Tar Heels live in about 15 minutes. Glad you're with us on the David Glenn Show. Dean in Wilmington, you're up on the David Glenn Show. The NCAA book on violations is so sick Superman has trouble carrying. This is true. However, it's not buried into the small print in the back that you're not allowed to drive luxury cars that aren't yours. Okay? <laughs> Keep it here on the David Glenn Show. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Mac Brown of the North Carolina Tar Heels joins us live in 15 minutes. Joe Person... Had a fun weekend, even with the Panthers in an open week. He got to shadow the veteran tight end Greg Olson, still doing good things for the Panthers, but also a promising broadcaster. Olson was the game analyst for the Giants-Cardinals matchup on the NFL on Fox. Of course, that Cam Newton guy is coming back to practice. Ron Rivera is meeting with the media shortly. Joe Person joins us now. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. Did you learn something new while following Greg Olson, or have you been around so long that everything's just old hat for you? You know what? It was cool kind of seeing the other side of the curtain. I'm sure you have many times uh, with, with your broadcasting stuff. But being out in the truck uh, before the game and just sort of seeing how how they do things on a, on a big-time production like that, uh, it was funny that right next to the, the Fox truck was the Monday Night Football truck. Yeah. Because uh, in that same booth where I was hanging out yesterday, you know, Booger McFarland and, uh, and Tessator will be there tonight calling the Jets and the Patriots. So, uh, and, and, and in fact, as I was writing my story, they were digging up the Giants uh, panels out of the, the AstroTurf end zone and putting in the Jets. So, yeah, I, I, I did not, what I didn't learn a lot about, is Greg Olson as a, uh, a broadcaster in terms of learning anything new? Because I already thought he was pretty good, yeah. and, and and he did nothing. Is my opinion, and and uh, the opinion of a lot of uh, other folks who study the, the sports media field more than I do. Joe Person joining us on the David Glenn Show. As always, find his work at theathletic.com and the Athletic Carolina on Twitter. You can follow him at Joseph Person. I don't remember when Cam Newton was the number one overall pick to the Panthers, there being a lot of deep skepticism about his ability as a thrower. Everybody described him as this promising dual threat guy. I, I ask you to think back to that because, as you know, there was massive skepticism 
about Lamar Jackson of the Ravens and even, you know, the Bill Polian concept of he'd need to be a wide receiver to make it in the NFL. Uh, Lamar Jackson's on most people's short list for the NFL MVP with the Ravens 5-2 and two and him putting up, you know, Michael Vick-type rushing yardage numbers but also a good passer rating. What do you remember about his slide all the way to the end of the first round uh, and, and that conversation that has taken a pretty dramatic turn around Lamar Jackson now? Yeah, you know, it was similar kind of talk with Cam, and not not exactly, but you remember all the Cam critics were, were all over him about his appearance on Gruden's football camp, or quarterback camp, rather, and, and the idea that, that he couldn't process right. and digest an NFL offense and the parlance and the nomenclature and all like that. And, uh, and just the idea was he an athlete playing quarterback. Uh, so I, I do think, you know, and, and I know some of that, you know, sadly remains kind of like coded language, Right. but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's pretty incredible. I have not studied Lamar Jackson. I just keep seeing a couple highlights here and there. And, and then the stats, you know, there was one that, that was sent out last, last night by the NFL. That of course he, he it seems seemingly every week now he is like doing something that no one had had done previously except for Cam. And that was this most recent one is rushing for 500 yards in the first two NFL seasons. And the fact that he's already there is pretty incredible. So I'm sure that, that, you know, the the Randall Cunningham and Michael Vick record, single season records are probably going to go down in flames here in, in another seven weeks or so. But, yeah, it's uh, yeah, the, the, the home cam thing, and, and I know you're going to touch on this probably next. Oh, yes. It's uh, we're, we're, this, friend, this Panthers franchise is, is at a crossroads, it, it, not necessarily this week, but, but certainly this season and the next month or so. Yeah, and with that in mind, remind us the timetable this week. You're about to meet with Ron Rivera uh, and the other assembled media. Uh, remind us of the practice schedule leading up to the 49ers game because reports last week were that Cam would be practicing. And you have the short-term Kyle Allen versus Cam Newton decision. And then, as you said, the much more important big picture, you know, <laughs> who's the future quarterback of this franchise as Cam is owed uh, $20 million plus next year again. Uh, what about this week and the 49ers game? What's your educated guess as you await uh, Ron Rivera? Real Paris, but... Schefter's report last week, which nobody really has, has confirmed on either side of the fence, I'm not doubting that it's true. But if you go back at it, it was that Cam would be ready to practice, not necessarily that he would be practicing. And I think that's an important distinction true. in this because I think Ron Rivera's public on the record comments last week certainly strongly suggested that the Panthers are not going to be rushing this process. And it behooves them to find a little time. Uh, maybe the situation takes care of itself if, if Kyle Allen lays an egg against the 49ers and their very tough defensive front. Uh, and, and, and also, too, in fairness, Cam hasn't done anything football-related in six weeks. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he's, not, he's got to get his timing back. Uh, a, a little bit of his wind back, all things like that. I, I don't know that that's going to happen in three days, and that, that, and that gets me back to your, your original question. Today, as I understand it, not really a practice setting. It is more kind of like easing back in off the bye. Let's go out, 
stretch, maybe do a little conditioning kind of work for the Panthers. Then they practice Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in Charlotte, fly to San Francisco on Friday. I don't know if we'll see Cam Newton on that on that plane or not on Friday. Obviously, a lot could could a lot this week will determine whether he is or not. But at just based on what Rivera said last week, it seemed like they were going to try to slow play this for a number of reasons. Teddy Bridgewater, as the backup in New Orleans, has gone five and zero in the absence of Drew Brees, and a lot of folks are talking about, hey, he's he has a bigger body of work than Kyle Allen, obviously, uh, but five and zero, looking impressive, throwing accurately. Uh, Denver might want him next year as its long-term starter. Uh, maybe Tennessee wants a successor to Marcus Mariota. There's all that speculation for 2020. My question to you is. Kyle Allen's four straight wins this year as Cam's backup, plus what he did in one start last year. How do you calibrate where he is in these conversations? Because as the Panthers have a decision to make gradually, uh, Kyle Allen is a guy that uh, I know the contractual details make it easier for the Panthers to keep him than for somebody else to get him. But, you know, he's not Teddy Bridgewater, but 5-0 and as a starter is certainly opening some eyes. Yeah, and he's going to be the Panthers' property. I mean, he 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 only had. I mean, he's on a very you know friend, team friendly cheap deal right now, and then he'll be like the first bit of contractual thing for him will be as an exclusive right free agent, right? Which you know, which gives the Panthers you know basically he remains their property. They would probably tear that up and give him a new contract uh, if he were going to be the quarterback of the future. I had an interesting conversation with um, uh, someone in a, another NFL team's front office last week, and this person made a good point that in a in, in a lot of ways, Cam being out for this six-week stretch rather than say two weeks really ended up helping the Panthers a lot in yeah. terms of the, the big picture and evaluating Kyle Allen. If it's a two-game stretch and, and you know, he, he wins those two games and then Cam's back, you don't really know what you have. Maybe you still don't, but, but you sure know a lot more than you did after Week 17 last year, which a lot of people were writing off as a fluke and the Saints resting their starters, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, if if you're David Tapper and 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 directing this ship going forward, if you if you decide to that, that Cam is not going to be on the team in 2020, you know, and, and you save that 19 million bucks, then then and this is what you brought up. The real interesting question is then: Is it Kyle Allen? Is it Will Greer? Is it somebody in next year's draft? And I just think a lot of this still needs to play out, but certainly Kyle Allen, and I'm understating it, has put a very good first step forward. Joe Person, there is never a bad time to read his work, but with so many interesting things, I mean, he's must-read every day. Uh, probably the rest of the season, given the Cam, Kyle, and other details. Even the San Francisco game this weekend should be a fun one. The 4-2 and two Panthers visiting the still undefeated and 6-0 and oh San Francisco 49ers. I don't get to say this to you a lot, but I've got a Hall of Famer on the other line, Mac Brown, so i got to let you go. Thanks for the visit. Have fun with Ron Rivera and company today.
You got it, buddy. Take care. Right back at you. Joe Person on Twitter, at Joseph Person, online, The Athletic Carolina. The Hall of Fame head coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels coming off a history-making game in Blacksburg heading into a renewal of the Duke-Carolina football rivalry. Mac Brown, next on the David Glenn Show. Mike Krzyzewski joining us. We asked folks you work with at Duke if you've changed or mellowed over the years. Well, you know, mellow is having a glass of wine and looking over, you know, the sunset, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't see how you can be mellow and coach a game. That can't happen. If it does, then you shouldn't be coaching. Keep it here on the David Glenn Show. Welcome back to the David Glenn Show. 1-800-849-2761. Joe Person in the books on the NFL. Matt Brown on the way. Heading into the Duke Carolina matchup. Legendary in men's basketball worldwide. Matters a lot to a lot of people in basically every sport closer to Durham and Chapel Hill. The Gridiron guys reunite. David Cutcliffe, our guest later this week. Mac Brown joining us on today's program. The Tar Heels in part two of the Mac Brown era. Remember, he was hired at the end of the 80s. His first two teams in Chapel Hill were horrendously bad. They were among the first teams I covered as a young journalist. After those two horrific teams, he recruited so well, even through those defeats, that he built teams that went to eight or had eight straight winning seasons, most of them bowl games. And by the end of a full decade in part one of Mac Brown and Chapel Hill, they had back-to-back -to -back top 10 seasons in the national polls. They were playing Florida State in a matchup of top five teams in Keenan Stadium that was as loud as I've ever seen a college football environment in the great state of North Carolina. They're not quite in those conversations yet again in Mac Brown Part 2, but against a tough schedule, they've done better than most would have thought. Wins over the South Carolina Gamecocks in Charlotte. They beat the Miami Hurricanes. They pushed the Clemson Tigers to the limit. They went to Georgia Tech, a place where they often lose, and they beat the Yellow Jackets. They did suffer a defeat this weekend, six overtimes against Virginia Tech, a small step backward for the Tar Heels as they have even bigger dreams than just making a bowl game. At three and four, they have a good shot at that bowl, and he inherited a team member that had won a combined five games over the past two seasons uh, under Larry Fedora. A goal is still a bowl, but whereas that is realistic, the Tar Heels no longer have much wiggle room if they want the bigger dream of making a run at a Coastal Division title a realistic possibility. Remember, Duke was hammered by UVA this past weekend, so the Cavaliers are still Coastal contenders. They were my pick and the media's pick to win the Coastal this year and face Clemson in the ACC title game. The Pitt Panthers are still in that mix as well. So the Tar Heels have big games still to play, including a visit from the Blue Devils on Saturday afternoon in Chapel Hill. We will be there with the Big Tailgate Tour, so don't forget, it is our final stop this season in Chapel Hill. If you didn't see us the first time we were there, you can win Tailgate of the Week honors, which qualifies you for Tailgate of the Year honors. For the record, UNC is one of the biggest schools. Let's see. UNC is the biggest school that has never had a Tailgate of the Year honoree. So NC State has had one. ECU has had one. Uh, Elon has had one, North Carolina A&T has had one, uh, or, or North Carolina Central, rather. App State has had one, but nobody from UNC has ever won tailgate of the year. That's not on Mac Brown's mind, but the Blue Devils are. Coach, welcome back to the David Glenn Show. How are you? 
I'm doing great, David. How are you? I'm doing really well. I heard that earlier today you said the loss in Blacksburg, six overtimes, was one of the three toughest of your entire career. What made it that? David, we had about five chances to win it with one play. Yeah. And you got to do that. When you get, we, we, we're growing up, we're getting better, we're trying so hard, we're in every game, but when it, it's time to put it away, you got to put it away, and that's, that's the next step for us. Did you, your staff, or your players even remember how the rules change when you go that many overtimes? Well, we did because I think we're the first team to have ever done it yep. with Virginia Tech. And um, I, I still would like for us to move the ball back to the 35 instead of 25, and we probably won't get to six. And there's very few teams that have ever got to six. And very honestly, we had our chances to cut it short, and so did Virginia Tech. So it shouldn't have gotten to six. None of us just wanted to finish it. You announced a change earlier today. Uh, Noah Ruggles, of course, has missed some kicks for you. True freshman walk-on Jonathan Kim is your new place kicker. Uh, tell us about that change, and where do you stand, Coach? You were accused of icing your own kicker on one of the field goals up in Blacksburg. Uh, what's your philosophy about whether you talk to that guy or whether you ignore him when a big kick is on the way? Uh, I've, I've always talked to him because I talk to him every day, and we make that kick every day. And in fact, every day in practice, David, we we have a countdown: seven, six, five, four to win the game. Um, so we we do that daily with with both our kickers, and both of our kickers have been competing all the time. And Jonathan will start as the starter this week, but these guys will compete all week. Uh, we actually went up till game time on Saturday to see which kicker would kick off and which kicker would uh, do the field goal. So. Uh, we chart them every time. We chart them daily, and that's just something we do. We uh, obviously didn't ice our kicker. We've got a very young offensive line. Uh, we had the tackle over, and we didn't need it at that point on the field. So we knew they were going to call a timeout anyway, so it didn't bother us. We called the timeout to make sure that we were lined up properly in the offensive line. I think I first had a recruiting conversation with you in 1987. So you and I are both familiar with the rules that prevent you from talking about individual prospects. But I wonder in the more general sense, Coach, you are making huge positive headlines in recruiting. Without naming names, can you just tell us what message is clicking so well? You know, and does it even matter when they see you, you know, one point short of the number one team in the nation, Clemson, a few weeks ago? David, it's a great question, but this is a great place to recruit to. You've got a great academic university. A lot of these kids grow up loving North Carolina. They love basketball here. They love the color. And we are the state university. And now they wanted to see the stadium full, and it's been full. Every game has been a sellout. Our students are packing in. We don't, we don't have enough uh, tickets for our students. Uh, Saturday is a sellout for Duke. And now they see that we're competing so hard, we were one play away from beating Clemson. We're, uh, we're in every ball game. We had opportunities on Saturday night, so I had so many texts from the recruits after the game saying, oh, coach, we're so close. So the message is, David, we're, we're, this bunch is setting the foundation for the future. We're thin. We've lost a lot of guys to injury. Um, but they're competing their tail off, and we're so close. 
We need you recruits to help us take it to the next level. Mac Brown is with us, the Hall of Famer from the North Carolina Tar Heels. You can follow him on Twitter, at Coach Mac Brown. I wonder, Coach, I mean, you lived through not only some great Duke Carolina football games, but as you know, it's regarded in men's basketball as one of the best rivalries in the whole world of sports. Did you actually find yourself making time to see Duke and Carolina play in basketball when you were the head coach at Texas or a broadcaster at ESPN? Absolutely. In fact, uh, nobody in Texas understood it, but... (laughs) Uh, my sons and I were looking for the game as soon as we got to Texas. How do you find it right during recruiting? And everybody said, what? You're looking for a basketball game? I said, yeah, it's an important basketball game. And I, I love that game. I love the way they compete. And, and uh, Duke's had the, the better half of, of this rivalry for us for a while now. So uh, it's not a rivalry unless both teams are winning. So we've got to get it back so, so we're more competitive. You and I, I believe, were in a post-game press conference in 1989 after Duke beat your Tar Heels 41 to nothing, and you couldn't have known at the time, but Steve Spurrier's Blue Devils took the photo in front of the Keenan Stadium scoreboard. Do you remember anything about that? Because, Coach, after that, your Tar Heels won the victory bell 13 years in a row, so that's memorable. Yes, I want to thank Steve for taking that photo. <laughs> he sent it out as a Christmas card, so it, it's one that we were able to get it keep. And uh, I don't think I use it for motivation now, David. Right. But, uh, we used it for the next eight years for sure while I was here. Right. He didn't get credit for all thirteen, but he helped turn the tide in that rivalry. Hey, you and David Cutcliffe have both been the national coach of the year. So as you're on opposite sidelines on Saturday afternoon, how do you describe what makes your counterpart special? Well, I, I love David Cutcliffe. He's uh, first. He's a really good man. He's a good father. He's a good husband. He's uh, a guy who really cares about the game of football. He and I were on the um, American Football Coaches Association board, and and we sat there for hours every spring and talked about what's good for the game. And he cares about what's good for the game, and he does it right. He doesn't break rules. He brings in good kids. They're bright kids. Uh, he coaches them well. Uh, he is the the perfect guy at Duke to win like he has for the, the long time that he's been there. He's had a, a long tenure. He's had opportunities to leave, and, and uh, I love him. I did see on Twitter the other day that he was calling Coach Roy Williams and I out for a dance contest, <laughs> dancing for the stars. I may leave that to his, Roy. I don't think I'm in their league. He actually had a few of those comments here on our show. I think it was last Thursday, but, uh, yeah, I think you all are pretty good dancers, actually. Last thing for you. Uh, long ago, Coach, it felt like the label homecoming used to mean you'd schedule somebody that you knew you would beat and your players would have fun and you'd have fun and your fans would have fun. The, the definition of homecoming has changed, and I'm just curious because it is technically your homecoming weekend. Is it a big deal to the players anymore as the Blue Devils are your homecoming opponent but certainly not a cupcake, uh, or is it mostly for the fans nowadays? No, I think it's mostly for the fans. We were the uh... – homecoming game at Virginia Tech last week. So uh, the ACC and TV makes your schedule, and the university has to figure out what day's best for them to have homecoming for the students and the fans. So I I really don't think they're connected anymore like they used to be. At at Tulane, we were everybody's homecoming (laughs) game. They they would put us at the first of homecoming, at the end for homecoming. They just wanted to call us and say, when can you get here? That's going to be our homecoming. (laughs) We always ask if we could have a parade and uh, or have a float in their parade because that's not the only thing we could win. Well done, Coach. Thank you for squeezing us in on the David Glenn Show. Good luck against the Blue Devils. Thanks, David. You Thanks got for it. having me on. You got it. Mac Brown, year one of part two, his tenures in Chapel Hill. 
43-41 in six overtimes. The score against the Hokies. The bowl remains the goal. Mac Brown made no bones about it. He doesn't like the word rebuilding. There's too many upperclassmen that have seen too many, too many down times. They still have a very realistic shot at a bowl and maybe even something bigger than that. Back to best and worst of the weekend with your phone calls next. The David Glenn Show, where the great guests have so much fun, they never want to leave. I'll come give you a pep talk before your next show if you need me to. We could use that from you, Webb Simpson, anytime. Hey, I'll be your intern after this. Is everything open, man? We'll take Joe Harris as an intern every day <laughs> and twice on Sunday. Listen weekdays to The David Glenn Show.